What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hackness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Lily Higgins, and we speak about game thinking as a lens you can put on to design workshops and basically anything else. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. Now, enjoy. Hello, Lily. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. I am very curious to learn more from you about urban games and game thinking. And before we're getting there, I always like to kick off with the same question. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? I really liked this question because no one has ever asked me that before, actually. And I, it caused me to reflect on my relationship with that word facilitator and how I view myself and what kind of practitioner I am. So let's say I've been a facilitator for bit over four years now, but I only started writing facilitator in my bios in the last, I would say half a year, maybe a bit more, mm. which when I reflected on that, I was like, hmm, that's interesting that I've been doing this thing now for quite some time, but I didn't give it its own place in the way that I describe myself as a professional. Interesting. And do you recall what made the what caused the shift? Well, I've been undergoing a process of deep self-reflection as a person, but also as an entrepreneur over the past year and a half, which I think I'm not alone in that. And I've been asking myself this question, you know, what is it that I really do? And where is it that my strengths really lie? What am I good at what what comes easily for me and facilitation kind of ends up being the answer to a lot of those questions but before this i was focusing a lot more on let's say that the subject matter which i was facilitating so things about strategic foresight or about gamification or about leadership or organizational change And those are the things that I would focus on when I was describing what is it that I do. And facilitation is always a part of that, but it didn't seem like it, it wasn't its own thing in a way. Like <laughs> it didn't, it didn't uh, hold its own weight or something. It didn't have enough weight to say, oh, but I'm actually a facilitator. And that's the core of what I'm doing. And in the past few months, also as I've, developed more as a facilitator and met more facilitators and people who really identify this way, it's almost like I got permission to say, well, actually, this is what I do. Mm. Because the subject matter, in a way, comes second. And the learning experience design and the facilitation is really where my strength lies. Thank you for decomposing this. I think it's a it's a journey that not only myself but many in the audience can relate to and identify with. Mm -hmm. And then what I find is interesting is also this switch between okay, what I do is facilitation, but when comes the moment where I'm, as you say, I'm giving myself permission to actually put the label on my bio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And. And when can I say I'm a facilitator and that that means something to other people? I think that was a struggle for me too. I wanted to make sure that I was being understood mm. and that my, my strengths and my added value were, were going to be understood. And I thought maybe if I put all of these other things about the subject matter, which I often facilitate about, maybe that's easier to understand. But it's almost like I don't want to define myself by that subject matter, even though it's you know what I'm passionate about. 
but facilitation is so much broader than just any one subject matter mm. because it can be i'm an amazing facilitator of like birthday parties for example <laughs> and of my wedding that i just had and all of these these gatherings that to me are no different than a workshop about leadership or about visioning or strategy or all of these things the the core way of going about it is the same mm, so what is what is the core of your work what in your perspective brings the facilitation of a birthday party or even your own wedding and the facilitation of a workshop together where do you start what is the school of thought maybe or the school of practice you're coming from well the school of practices are many i would say i pull inspiration from many different areas but i would say my first kind of pool of knowledge and experiences around game design and mm -hmm. gamification and the sort of second and newer but equally as important inspiration for me has been Priya Parker's Art of Gathering which when I read this summer actually I felt like wow finally someone understands <laughs> finally someone has the same skill set as me and is describing it in this way that makes complete sense and everything that I've been trying to connect the dots on made sense when I read her book so that was a really beautiful and important moment for me which happened very recently but the gamification and game design and what I and my collaborators call game thinking has been sort of where I've developed my expertise in and the the perspective from which I approach pretty much all of my facilitation, including my wedding and birthday parties, as well as, you know, leadership and all the other like workshops for clients that I do. The most serious ones. <laughs> the serious ones. And yeah. You, and when you say game thinking, what does it mean? And what's the difference between game thinking and just gamification, or maybe it's the same? Yeah, well, they're very closely related. And game thinking is a term that my collaborator, Bruno Satola, uses to describe his work. And I'm definitely influenced by his way of thinking about this topic. So he's been a really important figure in my development around applying gamification in new ways. So I would say that game thinking is almost like a subset of gamification or a, a variation on it. Traditional gamification a lot of times ends up being a kind of superficial applying of game-like elements to usually things that people don't want to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we always say like, it's like a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, kind of. So, for example, uh, I don't know, you could gamify uh, like doing your taxes or something or a lot of organizations when they hear about gamification for the first time, they think, oh, this is our chance. This is how we're going to motivate our employees to do things that we, we can't make them do otherwise because they're too boring or too tedious. And if we add game elements, such as a leaderboard or give people points or give people badges, then suddenly, you know, the motivation will come and, and people will, will do these things that we weren't able to get them to do. But to me and to Bruno, who I work with on this uh, type of thinking, we find that to be a very... Yeah, superficial, but also a lot of times unethical way of applying game elements because mm -hmm. 
it's still really extrinsic motivation. And it's not actually harnessing what the real power of games is. And I always just think that's a shame because games are so powerful and they can be super motivating. And it doesn't even have to be an entire game. It can just be elements of a game that can motivate people in new ways. So what are the elements that are actually ethical or helpful in supporting the intrinsic motivation of participants as compared to gamification, which is, as you say, the sugar um, on the spoon <laughs> of medicine? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing to, to think about a lot of times are different player types to think about engagement and motivation. And um, yeah, well, if we think about everyone on earth as a player of the game we call life, you'll encounter that there's, I think there's around six, but everyone sort of has a slightly different list of, of player types. There are people who are more motivated by social connection in games. There are people who are more motivated by achievement. So beating the game itself or like excelling in the game. There are people who are more interested in beating the other players. So being like highly competitive, uh, but don't really care about winning the game per se. <laughs> It's mm -hmm. more about like the sort of being better than other players. And there's people who play games just to explore sort of curiosity. Uh, maybe you think of sandbox games like Minecraft, where you can kind of just see what this does, see what that does. And you can play challenges, but you can also just play in an open way. And then there are a lot of people who play games simply to immerse themselves in something. There are many more, but these are the, the main ones that come to mind right now. And um, this is like one way to look at how can we create an experience that's going to resonate with different types of players. So if you can first understand who the players are, then you can understand what kind of game is going to motivate them. And I love the example from Bruno, who is a teacher. And whenever he's teaching a, a new class, he tries to kind of understand what are the different player types in this class? Maybe there's someone who is, is really an achiever player type, and it's really going to motivate them to, to get a high grade. But that could completely not be a motivator for someone else who is much more about connecting to other people and therefore might excel much more in a group project, for example. So there's all these different ways of kind of looking at phenomena in life and seeing if this was a game, what are the elements at play here and what kind of player type is being favored? So who, who is this game kind of designed for or who did the, the game designer have in mind when they set up these parameters? Intriguing. And two questions come to my mind. One is when we use this framework for designing workshops, so collaborative processes or co-creative processes, how much information do you then need about the players slash participants? And How do you transform then something serious as solving a problem or arriving to a solution to this game thinking? So where do you have to draw the line, if any, between the seriousness and the idea of a game that is fun? Okay, well, you don't. <laughs> That's uh, my short answer, is that the lines can always blur. And just because you think about something as a game doesn't mean it's stops being serious. Mm. I don't think that all games are playful or look playful. And by games, I mean phenomena in life. So meetings, workshops, birthday parties, all of these things like you can frame as a game. Relationship. Relationships, marriage, <laughs> boss, employee relationships. Everything, everything can be framed as a game. And in order to, to do that framing, 
to sort of systematically think about life as a game, it's helpful to know what the six elements of games are, which are players, rules, roles, time, goals, play objects, and play space. Mm. So if you look at any given phenomena (laughs) or social interaction or happening, you can usually find most of these elements somewhere. You can kind of pinpoint them. And as soon as you can pinpoint them and kind of like almost systematize them, you can start to to think, well, how could we change this game by changing the rules, for example, or changing the place where we play this game or changing the amount of time that we decide to play this game. So what if board meetings didn't last for two hours, but they lasted for 10 minutes? Mm. How would that change the way that we play that game? So that's the very kind of basic explanation of how to put on your game thinking glasses and sort of Bruno and I always joke that it's like an x-ray vision that you, you put on your game thinking glasses and suddenly you can see all of the games that are happening around us. And you can also see where are the levers that I could pull or push to mm-hmm. change those games. And then the rules would basically be restrictions. They can be restrictions, but they can also be like unspoken social protocols. Mm-hmm. So for example, in a meeting with the boss, that there's a maybe in a in a company, there's a cultural kind of norm within the team that nobody interrupts the boss. Mm-hmm. Or that the most junior people shouldn't speak up. Or that men cut women off or all of mm-hmm. these these things that kind of go they fly a bit under our radar a lot of the time but as soon as you start to think about okay what are the ways that i am kind of playing when i enter into this kind of scenario yeah how does that actually create the dynamic of the game mm. and for me it sounds as if it's so to put this game thinking glass on when also preparing a session with a client or group might also give permission to make these implicit rules explicit? Precisely. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, thinking about everything as a game also gives you permission to play with it. And by play with it, I mean to question it and to tinker with it and to see, well, actually, what we want to be happening is that we want everyone in this meeting to have an equal voice, or we want all the women in this meeting to have a stronger voice or whatever, whatever outcome it is that you want to have, those different ways of thinking about how could this interaction be different in a more preferable way, those are all literally changing the game of this interaction. And if you think about it as a game designer, yeah, it it gives you it's like suddenly all the levers that you can pull become clear in front of you. It's no longer a kind of like esoteric thought. It's like, okay, if we have this meeting in a forest versus in the uh canteen of our of our office, like What's going to happen? How is that going to change the way we feel? How's that going to maybe have different people speak up or not? Or is it going to make us feel closer to this topic? Is it going to make us feel further away? Like there's all these different kind of emotionality that each one of these six elements of the game will evoke if you change them. So, how can I imagine it when you? Would this be something that you discuss with the client beforehand and say, okay, so let's define the rules of the game? Or would you do this in the session with the participants? Because I think when I think of a board game, we sit around a table and then if nobody knows the rules, we read out the rules so that we're all on the same page. 
And then mm-hmm. what we need to know is, okay, so what is the goal of the game? And what are, yeah, what are the rules and how long? No, the time actually we don't need to know in a board game, maybe. So how much do you communicate all of that to the group and with the client? Well, there's kind of two different ways to do this because I also do sessions with groups to actually do this process together. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's redesign your meeting. And then I introduce this way of seeing the world as a game and it becomes a co-creative session. And it, like a creative session where we think about, okay, well, what are these unspoken rules? And we you know, unearth them and we, we do that together. But if I'm just designing a session, which isn't necessarily about this, this is just kind of the way that I, it's like my jumping off point. Like, how is a session like this normally done? What kind of outcomes does that bring? How could we change that? How could we, you know, throw in an interesting rule here that would alter the behavior of people in the session? How could we play with time as a way to yeah, change the dynamic, change the way we have the conversation? How could we play with power? So roles, roles and power are very closely linked. Yeah, how could we switch up the power dynamic? How can we give power to people who maybe have less of a voice? Sometimes, how could we take away a bit of power from people who usually have a lot of the floor? All of these kind of questions are things that I think about as I'm designing the session on my own. How would you tackle this challenge of flattening the room or taking away power from some and reallocating it to others from (laughs) the game perspective? So what are the tools and tricks that you can use? Well, this always depends on the context. It's highly contextual. Usually, I will know a little bit about the team or the company and what kind of culture they have. But a lot of times, throwing in a rule that kind of has a bit of humor to it, that restricts people in a way that they're not normally used to being restricted. Like if you think of like a party game where it's Uh, where you have like a, a name on your on your forehead of a celebrity, for example, and you have to figure out who the celebrity is or who the, the name on your head is. And it's fun because you're restricted because you cannot just take the sticker off your forehead and read it. Mm-hmm. Like the fun is in navigating around the restriction. And you're um, only allowed to ask questions. And you're only allowed to ask questions, yes. Yeah. And it's funny because it puts you all in this uncomfortable situation where you're trying to figure out the name and nobody really knows their name, but everyone knows their name, you know? So this kind of dynamic is just an example of that came to mind of that rules can be fun. And I'm a very strong believer in that. I don't think rules need to be limiting. Mm. Rules can actually be very expansive because they can as we were just saying, kind of show us actually what are the unspoken rules that we're just taking for granted. And if a rule, if an explicit rule actually subverts an unspoken rule, so the, the explicit rule becomes do the opposite of that thing we all know that we were doing, then it becomes funny in a way. <laughs> Or there's this lightness to it, like, oh, yeah, we all uh, realized that actually we were acting in this way, but we never really talked about it. But if we all make the effort to do the opposite, then there's this moment of levity there. And it brings forth the awareness, how it actually yes. works, because you, you suddenly realize the effort it takes. So, for mm-hmm. instance, if the rule is men and women need to work or need to talk in alternation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or different teams or whatsoever. Then whenever someone wants to jump in, if you have these dominant voices mm-hmm. and suddenly the entire group goes, no, no, no. <laughs> Not allowed to speak exactly. Like this. No, we're playing a different game this time. And because yeah. it's 
in a way framed as a game. It's not like me as a facilitator, you know, calling out that person and saying, no, you're not allowed to talk now. You know, we, we agreed on this. It's not, it's not that energy at all. It's the whole group is saying, hey, we agreed together that we stepped into what is called the magic circle, which is the place where play and games happen. And the magic circle is really just a social contract that we kind of sign, quote unquote, with each other to play by different rules than how we play in normal life. So if we're able to sort of become aware of creating magic circles strategically mm-hmm. in a way to say, okay, we need to do this differently. Let's create a magic circle around this meeting and decide together what are the rules we want to play by in order to achieve an interaction that is more preferable than what we're having right now. And I can imagine that it also gives the team or the group a kind of permission to use these rules of this game then in different contexts and to remind each other. So if then they're going into a different context, a different meeting, and then say, oh, let's play this rule again, mm-hmm. it's a let's play this game again. It's a nicer way to remind everyone of the implicit rules they want to leave aside. Mm-hmm. Exactly. For that time. And what sort of the magic of, of play and games are, or what it can be, is they create a bit more safety to explore, explore the unknown, and to have less of a fear of failing. And that's another one of their, I would say, their big powers. And going back to the very first part of our conversation, what traditional gamification does not harness at all. <laughs> But when you, when you say, okay, we're going we're gonna to play the game of this meeting a bit differently. But it's just for today. It's just for now. It's just for the next hour. And that's, that's bringing in the time element which is important because giving a time limit allows people to know when this is going to be over, when I can go back to real life that's not in the game. And, but the funny thing is that when you give a time limit, it, it creates this sort of psychological safety for people like, okay, it's only for an hour. We ha- we're going to play this way. But after that, I can go back to however I was doing it before. And that's fine because we all agreed on that. But the funny thing about games is that they bleed into everyday life. A good game or a good gamified experience will change the way that we interact with each other. Maybe in small kind of gradual ways. But when we play, when we role play specifically, or when we act differently than how we normally act, our brain stores that memory as reality, like as something that we experienced and did not in a game setting. So when we leave the meeting, even though we're, it's like, okay, hours up, going back to the way I normally do my meetings now, that experience of playing the meeting differently is still stored in your brain as a real memory that happened. And of course, it did really happen because you were there, but it's, it's not stored in the, this was a game file. <laughs> this isn't real file. It's stored in the, I did this, and this is now a neural pathway that has formed in my brain file. So when you go into your next meeting, it's a lot easier for your brain to make that same connection again and to therefore like start to gradually play everything differently. And- Yeah, bringing the lingo to the other meeting. So introducing these new games into a new context. And it reminds me first of the concept that we learn through emotions. And a game is a game because it triggers emotions in us. And I love that you came back to the concept that you explored in the beginning about gamification and you called it unethical. And now I sense that I better understand what you meant by it. 
mm. had a huge light bulb moment while you <laughs> while you spoke because the gamification is almost exploiting an instinctive behavior we have or but that we might even feel ashamed for so if i am doing a certain task or following a certain behavior because there's something inside of me that wants to get this next badge mm -hmm. so yes i will do it but at the same time i might feel like why am i following these animal instincts yeah or, my, like dopamine uh, triggers or something exactly like and then i'm on top of the leaderboard because i gathered all these points but it almost feels kind of wrong because i was just following yeah these instincts as opposed to a game where you use the actual human behavior to to underline it and make a game out of that by making it explicit or by adding humor to it and thereby mm -hmm. changing from a more honest perspective. Okay, we acknowledge that we have these behaviors mm -hmm. and let's reveal them instead of playing with them underneath and just, yeah, manipulating basically. Mm -hmm. I think what you're touching on is really the core, at least my core belief about the power of games and not just games we play, but thinking about life as a series of games is that it gives us agency to play them differently. And it's, it's a kind of meta way to, to zoom out of the different interactions that we're in and question them and, and ask, is this the game I want to play? And I have a choice here. We have a choice to rewrite the rules together. And that we're not all just trapped in these pre-scripted ways of interacting. It reminds me of a fantastic book that I read a few years ago, which is called Finite and Infinite Games. And it's not the Simon Sinek book. No, it's the original one. It's the original. Yeah. Thank you. And <laughs> By James Cars. Yes, James Cars. I think that's the book that I gave away most often as a present. Because I love this distinction between finite games, they're played to be won. So there's mm -hmm. a goal in a finite game and we want to win. So the, the number of players and the rules and everything is set. And then there are infinite games that where the goal is to keep on playing. Mm -hmm. So the rules might change, the players might change, everything might change, but it's just a continuous thing. And if I remember correctly and understood correctly, these are more mindsets of people. So you exactly. can see every game either as a finite or as an infinite game and thereby um, change your behavior within that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to keep on playing? And are willing to change the rules and adjust, or do you just want to win? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the this whole approach of game thinking is very much aligned with with the finite and infinite games mindset because it really is a mindset. And this is where I'm always trying to explain how I see games because there's a game like tag or Tickertje in Dutch, hide-and-go-seek, whatever it is, or, or team-building games. There are, there are games, and then there are games. <laughs> and there's, there's games we can, we can play, like hide-and-go-seek, but then there's all of the games within life that we play. And I'm very interested in both. And sometimes it gets a little bit confusing, I think, for people when I'm you know, knee-deep in my game thinking, game theory world. But I think these small games, and I design a lot of urban games, they can help to almost shed the light on what the bigger games are, these more meta games. And that's kind of how I see the connection between them. So if in an urban game, for example, Hide-and-go-seek could also be considered an urban game if you were to play it in the city, which most children do. Mm -hmm. Any kind of street game 
can be considered an urban game. But I like to design urban games that play with the rules of the city. A simple deck of cards can be a brilliant way to engage a group. You can use them to stimulate thought, inject energy or spark lively conversations. But how can you use cards when you're facilitating virtually? Deckhive.com is a brand new platform that enables you to use cards on screen just as you would face to face. Invite people to a shared real-time session and then let them select, move and flip cards over. Our growing library includes many popular card decks including picture cards, strengths cards, emotion cards and more. But if we don't have what you need, you can even create your own deck really easily. Use the code WORKSHOPSWORK when you subscribe to a paid monthly plan and you'll get the first month completely free. Go to deckhive.com and give it a try. And before we dig into the topic of urban games, because I would love to better understand what an urban game actually is, mm -hmm. I would like to close the um, topic of the workshops with yes. the question that I always ask, according to you, what makes a workshop fail mm. <laughs> from your game perspective lens? thinking oh so many possible things <laughs> well let's say one of the first things that i think makes a workshop fail is facilitators who are too chill who don't create rules in a way for people to they don't they don't give the participants guardrails they don't create psychological safety at the beginning of the workshop. And one really great way to create psychological safety is to make the unspoken rules explicit. Mm. So essentially, when they don't fully take on their role as the game master. So you spoke about urban games. So yes. what is an urban game and how do you facilitate that? An urban game is any kind of play or game experience that is facilitated in public space. And the public space part is very important <laughs> because what is interesting about urban games is how they can disrupt the flows of the city and the scripted nature of at least Western cities. By scripted nature, I mean that All cities are designed in a very, well, capitalist way, let's say. So they're designed to get from A to B. They're designed to, to consume, to go to work, to go home, to go shopping, to sightsee, to be a tourist. And we don't realize it, a lot of us, if you're not an urban planner and you have never really thought about why a city is laid out in the way that it is, a lot of that goes completely under the radar for people, that the way we act in cities is designed, especially in Dutch cities. There's a very strong control that is exerted over us when we are bodies in cities. Mm. And this is a phenomenon that I'm just personally very interested in. And I was looking for a way to play with those norms and to play with these unspoken rules of how do we as adults behave ourselves in cities? How do we spend our free time in cities? How do we meet up with other people in cities? All of these questions, which are very, like this, the answer that I came up with for most of these is, well, I go and get a coffee with people. Or, oh, I go out and sit on a terrace. Or I go to the park and sit there and have a barbecue. And I thought there has to be more that we can do in cities as adults that really makes us feel a part of the liveliness of cities. Because cities are magical places where chance encounters are what make them The place where people want to live. Can you um, give an example the, of chance encounters of disrupting the city, of using it in a different <laughs> way than they were planned for. Yeah, well, that's sort of the whole idea behind my passion project, which is called Urban Playwalks Rotterdam. 
I'm based in Rotterdam. The play walks can be in any city, but I happen to be in Rotterdam most of the time. And they are an afternoon long workshop that I facilitate along with Bruno, who I've already mentioned. And he and I will choose a neighborhood in Rotterdam usually, and we will take a long walk through the neighborhood, a long wandering walk without destination. And we will observe what are the interesting phenomena we see in this neighborhood. What kind of social behavior is there? What kind of architecture is there? What kind of traffic is there? What kind of places to play are there? What kind of empty spaces are there? And we find inspiration in the smallest things. It could be the way a street painted the lines, like the the street lines are painted on the street. It could be an open space that we never noticed before, but now we see, hey, that could be a really interesting place to play a game. Or it could be a behavior that we observe like widespread through the space. So for example, one of our kind of infamous urban play interventions was that we took a group of 30 people to the Rotterdam Central Station and we asked everyone to swipe in with their public transport card and then to walk as slowly as they possibly could from one end of the station to the other end and with plenty of space between us. So we didn't like cause a, you know, a hazard, (laughs) (laughs) but Bruno and I were observing the central station and we asked ourselves, well, what is, what's the norm? What's the main norm of the central station? And the main norm of the central station is that you are in a rush and you are trying to get from A to B. There is no like wandering through the central station. Like you are there for a reason. You're trying to get to platform seven at this exact time. And so we wanted to turn that on its head and say, okay, well, what if we just disrupt that in the most gentle possible way, which is just walking slowly and not really having a place to go. And um, we caused such a stir in the train station that the security was called. Everyone like was in a panic almost. Like we created this wave of confusion. Everyone who saw us stopped to watch what, what are they doing? We were just walking slowly. We were not doing anything else in silence. And um This was just a perfect example for me of how easy it is to subvert the rules and that you can do so in a way that does not damage anything. It it doesn't hurt anyone. It's not against the law. And yet it is so powerful Mm -hmm. for the people who are doing it and for the people who happen to be watching. And what did they take away from this experience that would then link back to maybe a professional space or life? Well, this workshop and the Urban Playworks Rotterdam is not particularly linked yet to like office culture or team building, even though a lot of the exercises do kind of resemble what could be a team building exercise. But really, this is a project about questioning the city and its norms. So Bruno and I are working much more in the space of participatory city making. So bringing together citizens and people who work in the city government or who are architects or urbanists to go on these play walks together and to see how is it that we take up space in the city and what are the different ways that different people do that? And what are the norms? And how can we become more grounded in the reality of different neighborhoods instead of just designing like one-size-fits-all solutions? And so that that's more the kind of critical reflection point for the urban play walks. Mm-hmm. And this exercise of the central station was part of an entire 
afternoon of exercises like this. So it's it's like a chain of small exercises that we do as we walk through the city. And the particular theme of this workshop was about power and who has the power in the city and how can you take power? And yeah, it was a more conceptual kind of topic. Mm-hmm. But the the exercises we did were still very tangible and practical. And okay, what happens if we walk slowly through this space and sort of exert our power as pedestrians? And then later we had a discussion with the the security guards, like what is allowed, what is not allowed, why is it not allowed, why is it strange, why is it not strange? So we start to kind of uncover these social norms and invisible rules. And I find it intriguing, also thinking if the city was an organization mm-hmm. where you have similar rules, some spaces are designed for certain purposes. The train station is designed to go as quickly as possible from A to B. So if you have a group of people who start wandering around the train station, as you say, it disturbs, it creates this kind of disruption. Mm-hmm. What would be the equivalent of an organization? If you suddenly don't talk in a meeting or if Mm -hmm. you pass by offices and actually say hello to colleagues Mm -hmm. and ask them how they are doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's all of these small unspoken rules that we all follow and there's so much space to play with them in very gentle ways. So, yeah, it can be as simple as why do we sit in meetings and not stand why do we yeah sit around a table instead of all stand and look the same direction why do we use the clock to dictate how long we spend together Why not decide the meeting is over after we see three birds fly past the window? <laughs> I mean, that's taking it like quite far, but yeah. uh, to a more like poetic way of working, which, you know, may or may not be compatible with <laughs> the way that we are used to working and the demands that we have. But there are so many things that go unquestioned. Yeah, and I, what I like about the birds ex, um, example is, yes, it's maybe pushing it, but at the core, it makes everyone question, okay, why are we using the clock? And if at the end, through the discussion, the group aligns that it is the best way to time the meeting or to sit around the table, stand and look in the same, at least it, yeah, as you said, it brings the unspoken to the surface Mm-hmm. And creates a sort of alignment. Exactly. And the safe space that even the most apparently obvious rules can be questioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. Do you have a favorite exercise? It's very hard to choose. But one that I keep coming back to is called the Orchestra of Misery. Mm-hmm. And it's an exercise that I like to do. At the very beginning of sessions, I kind of have a thing against a lot of icebreakers. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> Come back to that in a bit. And I like to, well, it's really important to me that every exercise that I include in a workshop has meaning and has relevance to what we're actually going to be doing. And isn't just a placeholder. Mm. And the Orchestra of Misery is one of those perfect exercises that pretty much always works <laughs> without ever feeling like a placeholder. So a lot of times I am redesigning my workshops, you know, to re- be really custom to each group, to each scenario. So it's hard for me to say, well, this is my favorite exercise because I change them all the time. But the Orchestra of Misery is one of these exercises that I don't have to change very much for it to be really powerful. And so it goes like this. I become the conductor 
of the Orchestra of Misery as the facilitator. And this exercise works equally well on Zoom and in person. So that's also something that makes it special. But let's say on Zoom, because that's what we've been up to for the last one and a half years or so. So I ask everyone to unmute themselves. First rule, broken. <laughs> First unspoken rule. Uh, so everyone unmutes themselves. And I give people about half a minute to think of something that is really annoying them today, right now. Like, what is that burning annoyance that you have today? Like, maybe it's, you know, your neighbor kept you up all night. Maybe, you know, someone sent you a mean email and you have to make a bunch of corrections. Maybe you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Maybe you're pissed about global warming. Like, it could be from the most micro to the most macro thing. There's really no limit. So I ask everyone, okay, take a few seconds to think what is something that is just pissing you off. And the beauty of this is that everyone comes up with it in one second. Like in a lot of exercises that are like intro exercise, everyone is like, hmm, well, my favorite thing is, and everyone really has to think about it. But as soon as you ask, okay, what's really pissing you off? Everyone's like, I know exactly what's pissing me off right now. So when everyone's ready, I say, okay, I'm going to call your name. And when I call your name, you get a solo. You are the orchestra. You get a solo to rant about this thing that is annoying you as loudly as you want, as angrily as you want. Just let it rip. But as soon as I call the name of the next person, you need to stop talking on the syllable. Not You cannot finish your word. You cannot finish your sentence. So as soon as I call the name of the next person, then it's their time for the solo. So we start the exercise. I call them the first person. They go straight into full rant mode every time. Like there's no hesitation. It's beautiful. And... You know, when I've let them, when everyone has kind of heard the general gist of what the rant is about, then I call them the next person, then the next person, the next person. It usually works best if you're under 20 people. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's quite a long orchestral piece. Mm -hmm. But at the end, I say, okay, now the, the grand crescendo and everyone can then complain and rant at the same time. And then I say, okay, we're closing the piece. I, I gesture as the conductor to, you know, come to a silence. And this exercise is this amazing cathartic experience that does so many things for a group. Um, the first being that we all learn a little bit about each other in a way that there normally isn't space for in a serious professional workshop. You're not going to rant about that little thing that your dog did that just really pissed you off. Like there's just usually no space for that. But if you give everyone 10 seconds to just like blah, 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 blah it out, there's just this like immediate closeness in a group. There's, there's fresh air in the Zoom room somehow. It's just like everyone is like, oh, okay, we can start now. And I just love the impact that it has every time. I can perfectly see that. And I love the consistency with, again, breaking a little bit of a rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah the, the sort of unspoken rule here is don't share your stupid little things that are annoying you, you know, just put on a nice face and go into the meeting, be professional and yeah, when, when you can break that just for a couple seconds, it's already enough yeah. to make people feel closer. And it acknowledges that we are human beings and that we all have that. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that it flattens the room in a way that it just brings to mind that, yes, we are all human beings. Exactly. And we have these little or big moments that just annoy us. And to give it a space, permission, I can imagine that this really breaks the ice, mm -hmm. but then in a meaningful way, as you said. Yeah, 
Exactly. Keep doing that. I would try that out. Yes, please. I would love to know how it goes. I know that this exercise is already spreading among, amongst my network. <laughs> I learned it from someone else and now I've been tagged in a few LinkedIn posts. I'm using the Orchestra of Misery today. It would be great to have recordings of that to yeah. just put it together. So all the kind of, all the wins in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're just, you're one of them and it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. I really, really love it. And every time that I'm a part of it, it's like, I feel again, the excitement and the refreshment that I felt when I did it the first time. Mm. Somehow it, it maintains its magic. Yeah. Permission. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Since we have spoken for an hour already, didn't see the time pass. Oh, wow. Is there anything that you would have wanted to share that we didn't touch? I kind of wanted to talk about my women's walk, the night walk, because I think it's a good example of breaking norms, again, in a very gentle but profound way. So I don't know if there's time for that or if. You think sure. that there's another another topic that will wrap the conversation better. Maybe you can um, just use it as an example to link to the other topics and just share what the core of it is. Yeah. So my exploration into urban games has also led me to other types of urban interventions that challenge the rules of the city and I'm not sure that you can call it a game in the traditional sense but we are playing the game of the city differently again going back to this infinite infinite sort of micro macro game perspective and this is a, a night walk that I'm facilitating for women to essentially take back some feeling of ownership over being in the city at night. Mm -hmm. And it's the perfect kind of way to shed light on the unspoken rules of the city. And I was really moved actually by how much it did this and it, it surprised even me, someone who, who does these kind of interventions all the time. But recently I, I did a night walk together with my friend Salome. Uh, we facilitated about 10 women on a three hour walk starting at 10 PM. And we had everyone bring a small light source with them. So like a bike light or a flashlight that you could carry or clip onto your clothes. And we also asked everyone to submit two or three songs that made them feel powerful, confident. Yeah, just like untouchable <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of. And Salome and I curated it into a playlist. And we did a route de rive, which is borrowed from the Situationists, who were an art movement in the 1960s in Paris. And a lot of my work around urban games is very much inspired by them and their desire to yeah, disrupt the flows of the city and find what they call true spontaneity in the city. But they organized these uh, route de rive in English called a drift, where you just wander the city completely aimlessly with a group of people for could be two hours, could be 24 hours. You, you can decide and it's very loosely facilitated. The leadership of the group also changes organically. So when someone else wants to start leading the walk, they can. And in this series with women, we yeah, embarked from a location in Rotterdam And the only thing that I told the other women was, if you're leading the group and you come across 
an option to go left or right or straight. And on one path, there is a nicely lit path that looks very friendly and very safe. And on the other path, there is a group of scary looking people who you would avoid at all costs if you were by yourself. Take that route. Mm. So that was the only thing guiding us, actually. And the rest was just completely spontaneous and random, like where we ended up in the city. So we all just put in our headphones and wandered as a kind of loose group through the city as the sun started to set. And we were met with so much, yeah, sometimes resistance, with commentary, with, I wouldn't say verbal threats, but people kind of trying to run us over with their scooter and groups of men clapping at us and yelling at us and asking us, what are you doing? And this is a a group of 10 men standing on the corner, hanging out with their friends. And I'm like, we're doing the exact same thing you're doing. Really, the exact same thing. We're enjoying the city at night with a group of 10 of our friends. And this action, this this intervention of walking at night with this group of women, you know, past midnight, we ended up, we were like almost till 1am in the city, out in the harbor area where there's really not a whole lot there. There's just, you know, a couple groups of men hanging out around their car and drinking and smoking and places where as a woman on your own, you would avoid at all costs, like you would absolutely not go there. And there was so much empowerment from this exercise for everyone in the group. And at the same time, it was, again, this very gentle action of walking in silence. You know, we were not bothering anyone. We weren't screaming. It wasn't like a bachelorette party kind of vibe or something. We were just walking in silence with our flashlights, with our headphones in. And it just showed that men feel that they own the city at night and that we were intruders in their space and we were not supposed to be there. And that it was very clear that that's how almost everyone we passed tried to make us feel that we did not belong there. And it just showed me that such a simple intervention can shed light on these these norms that we all know are there, but then... Sometimes you need to see it with your own eyes again to realize, oh yeah, this is really a thing. This is really real. There's a reason why women feel unsafe in the city. It's not just in our heads. Yeah. And then also reminding ourselves that we can empower each other and actually might even be able to change that. Maybe not on a city level, maybe not immediately. But if we're going back to our microcosmos, Yes, we can. And we don't just need to accept it. Because I think most of the times there are these implicit rules and then either out of fear or out of comfort, Mm -hmm. just accept them as the status quo. Mm -hmm. And then I can imagine that such an intervention as you did, this being together brave also shows that in which other situation can I be brave Mm -hmm. or rethink the rules that maybe I don't want to obey by. Exactly. And yeah, by by being a group, we gave each other permission to do that yeah. and to be in this space of unsafety, but we created safety with each other. Yeah. Well, I guess that in Rotterdam, you can do that. Um, mm-hmm. There are maybe different parts of the world where even as a group of women, it wouldn't be safe. Exactly. And yeah. that's also another part that I was so shocked by in a way, because I consider the Netherlands to be, you know, one of the safest, most privileged countries in the world. And as a woman, I rarely feel unsafe walking in the streets. And I've lived in South America, I'm from the US. And in those different contexts, I've felt very, very different than the way I feel here. But it was really eye-opening for me that even in a place as safe or as yeah perceived safe as here that this group of women was still opening up about you know well 
I wanted to join this event, but I didn't know how I would get home safely. Or I wish I thought about what I was going to wear before I came. Or I actually didn't keep both headphones in the whole time because that's just too unsafe. And that really was eye opening for me that even here, we still feel like we don't have full ownership over, you know, being outside in the city where we live whenever we want. Mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. A different way of facilitation and still facilitation in the core sense where you guide a group through a transformative learning experience. Yes, exactly. There's a red line through it all. Mm. Looking back at the at our conversation, what would you like the audience to take away from it? I would love if the audience would start to look around in their own life at the games that they are players in and start to question them and start to see if they can find the agency as a player to become an active player in the game mm -hmm. and not just a passive player who thinks, yeah, well, this is just the way it is and, you know, it's fine the way it is and I'm comfortable or I'll suck it up. But what would it mean to become an active player in the game of your marriage, your relationship with your parents, your job, uh, your school? Yeah, what could that what could that be like? And how how else could you play the game and how how else could the game be? Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much, Lily, for this Thank you. inspiring conversation. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah. And if someone in the audience wants to reach out to you and wants to have to help them see their life and work through the lens of games, I will put all your details in the show notes. Yes. And I very much welcome that. And I love to think through all the infinite games that we play. So please do contact me and let's have a chat. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for staying tuned and listening to the show. I appreciate your attention as I know how busy you are. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and engage by sharing your comments and thoughts and visit workshops.org to download the one-page summary. I'm looking forward to seeing you back at the next episode and I wish you a fruitful day.